We're going to be ranging through the whole book of Hebrews, but uh, I want to read Hebrews 4 and verses 11-13 for now. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would take the feebleness of clay and that you would uh, cause uh, your word uh, to triumph uh, in our lives. Each one of us are simply earthen vessels, but I pray that the treasure of your grace would richly uh, cause us to be sanctified, to grow up into you, and to be able to rejoice uh, even in the midst of the difficulties that some are facing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> When my brother Stan used to live in California, I got to uh, go down to visit him and saw the Golden Gate Bridge, and it is a remarkable structure. I think it's one of the most beautiful bridges that I have ever seen. And what I especially liked about that bridge is it wasn't paid for with federal dollars. <laughs> it was paid by the people who used it. That's the way they did it in the olden days. You know, they had tolls and things like that to pay for it. But it's an impressive and very massive uh, bridge stretches 1.7 miles, and if you were to unravel all of the, the wires that are in that bridge, it would stretch around the earth at the equator three and a half times. Uh, the largest supporting cables are a yard in circumference. That's uh, 36 and 3 eighths inches to be exact. Uh, according to the tourism uh, site, uh, not counting the regular traffic, there's 9 million visitors that visit that every day. So a very popular site. And it's very popular for suicides as well because by the time the jumpers hit the water, they're traveling 75 miles an hour and uh, it's all over when they hit. Uh, they definitely die. I think there's average of one suicide every two weeks. They just don't know what to do about it. They don't want to put up higher fences because of the wind and everything like that. But it was also uh, one of the potentially most dangerous bridges during the time of construction, especially during the early phases of its construction, because there are uh, very frequently 60-mile-an-hour winds that are shooting through that strait. And when you're up there trying to balance, that's kind of a tough thing to do. There's fog that settles in. Many times you can't see ahead of yourself. In fact, um, on the web, they say, what's the one bridge in the world that very frequently is completely invisible in the clouds? Well, it's the Golden, uh, the Golden Gate uh, Bridge. Uh, they said that uh, these guys that went up there were dancing with death <laughs> because it really was uh, a kind of a dangerous thing, especially in the early uh, parts of it. But here's the remarkable thing. Despite the fact that this was potentially more dangerous than many of the other bridges that had already been built previous to this, it had the safest safety record uh, in history. Only one death in the first four years of construction. Now, there was a fluke uh, accident where uh, there was 11 people fell. They were all sitting on a, a girder that fell. And uh, that was a fluke thing in the last three uh, months of, of death. But uh, this guy even did not uh, fall. One of the reasons for the safety was because the chief engineer had the bright idea of stretching this massive hemp net 
throughout the entire span of underneath the entire span of that bridge. And there were 19 uh, people who fell into that and were not hurt. They were scared a little bit, but were not hurt in, hurt in the uh, the least. Uh, they, they said that these guys were part of the halfway to hell club. <laughs> Must not have been believers. Um, but anyway, uh, people have asked the question, why so few deaths there? Uh, some people have thought if you put a net under there, people are going to be even more careless and they're going to be more likely to fall. But actually, the exact reverse happened. Uh, they were more confident, yes, but that confident meant, confidence meant that they did not have fear that made you make a lot of mistakes and it made them 25% more efficient in their work. It freed them up. And the same is true of a proper understanding of God's grace. If your only understanding is uh, of the law of God, you're going to be grabbing so tightly onto those safety cables that uh, you're not going to get any work done. You're going to constantly be fearful and uh, stressed out. Uh, Every time you slip, you're going to be doubting your salvation and wondering uh, what is going on, whether God loves you or not. You'll be so preoccupied with your security that you're never going to move on to maturity. And ironically, those who emphasize the law because they want maturity uh, are the least mature. Now, those who only emphasize grace uh, do not go to maturity either. Uh, You're always falling down and getting up again, falling down, getting up again, or you just stay on uh, on that safety net and decide you're not going to try any longer. And so we've got to avoid a graceless law that all you can see are the dangers and it robs you completely of your joy. And on the other hand, you need to avoid a lawless grace that uh, could care less about the safety rules that God has established or the plans of the architect, you know, what direction it should be uh, going, or all of the instructions for putting together that, uh, that bridge. And we're going to constantly be hurting ourselves and hurting others. And so both grace and law are important. Uh, the Puritans spoke of a gracious law and a lawful grace. Both are important. Now, the reason I bring this up is it's very easy as we're reading through some of these admonitions in Hebrews to err in either extreme, to go to one or the other uh, direction there. It's easy to have a false confidence and say, you know, once saved, always saved. And anytime an admonition from Hebrews comes up, say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You're you're a believer, you know, there's no danger for you. And to just ignore that. On the other hand, it's very easy to become so stressed out about the admonitions that are there and the difficulties and the the defects in your life that you miss the confidence that God intends us to have. Too much morbid introspection. And in this New Year's sermon of self-evaluation, I want to avoid both extremes. So here's what we're going to do. There's eight safeguards that Hebrews sets up, and I don't want us to be thinking of these as nuisance things. These should be incredibly joyful things. If I was working on the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, I would be thrilled to death, not to death, to life. I would be thrilled, (laughs) you know, that they gave me these safety harnesses and hard hats and all of the other safety cables that were going to keep me uh, from falling. They are not nuisances. They are things that we should be rejoicing in. Now, in your outline, in each of these uh, verses, you're going to see in the middle the word lest, which uh, clues us in there is going to be a danger. And so the danger is in the second half of the verse, after the lest, but we're also going to be focusing upon the remedy. 
which is at the beginning, the remedy that brings us joy and keeps us from getting into trouble in the first place. Okay, the first verse we're going to look at is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. The full verse says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Or as the NIV has it, we must pay more careful attention. A first safeguard is to be constantly in the Bible, in the things which you have heard. And what it's safeguarding us against is the danger that we can uh, drift away, that we can apostatize. Now, we could worry and fret about the possibility of drifting away. Uh, After all, there are 60-mile-an-hour spiritual winds out there. There is fog that can settle in and uh, make us blinded to where we're going. But the book of Hebrews has no intention of making us worried. That's not the goal. The book of Hebrews wants us to be putting on the safety equipment and take seriously these eight safeguards so that we can work with joy and with confidence. And that's certainly true of the first safeguard. When the fog comes in, you can't see. Where do you go? You go to the one who can see. You go to God. You go to His Word. You you meditate on the Word. You, You memorize it. When you're feeling insecure with those winds coming through, you look to the promises of Scripture. It's an incredible safety harness. It's like those hand cables that you can hold on each side when you're trying to balance up there. Now, many Christians know this intellectually, but where's the first place that they go as soon as they find some insecurity? They go to man. They don't go to God. Uh, they, uh, they trust uh, human wisdom and financial security and government security. I want you to notice also that this verse does not deny that we can drift does not deny that we can be swept off the bridge. That is a false view of grace. Now, grace does catch us. There's a safety net down there. We're not going to go to hell. We won't lose our salvation. But we can be swept off the bridge, and it's not a fun thing. Next, I want you to notice that it is only as we have an earnest care for the Bible that we know that we're strapped in. The text says that we must give the more earnest There is an earnestness about our desire for Scripture that indicates that our soul has been hitched by a safety harness uh, to uh, that bridge. Seven other safety harnesses and hard hats and other safety items there. But if you've got them on, you can joyfully go about your work of building an incredible suspension bridge that's going to bring benefit to you and it's going to bring benefit and blessing into the lives of many other people. And so hunger for the Word of God. I know when Kathy and I used to get up very early in the morning when Joel was a baby, uh, he was very thirsty. When we'd bring the bottle, he'd literally snatch it out of our hands and just start guzzling away. And I was thinking, you know, that is exactly the way we ought to be. Anytime we are distanced from God's Word for any period of time, it ought to make us crave for, God, for that Word. That's a sign of health in our, in our lives. Peter told his hearers, like newborn babies, Crave the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow. Now, we could stop there and just say, yeah, that's a good thing to have a hunger for the Word of God. But listen to what Peter goes on to say. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 through 3. In effect, he is saying you're not going to have that kind of a hunger if you've not been saved. If you have never tasted of the grace of God, you're never going to have that hunger. Well, that's a similar thing to what the Hebrews is talking about. Those who have been regenerated by God have an earnest desire for His Word. He's saying, in effect, in Hebrews, 
that if you've not tasted of God's grace, you're not going to have a spiritual hunger. But if you have been saved by God, you are going to hunger for the Word of God. And so there's only two options. Um, if you don't have a hunger for the Word, just it's not interesting to you at all. The two options are this. You're either spiritually sick or you're dead spiritually. There really are no other two options. God says He implants within our soul a life, a, a, a desire, a hunger for His Word. And either way, whether you're spiritually sick or whether you're dead, you can be swept off of that bridge. So here's the question. Are you tethered by the Word? In large part, today's sermon is going to be a sermon on self-evaluation and examination. And as we evaluate these eight safeguards, they can potentially bring a great deal of joy into our lives and say, wow, that's there, that's there in my life. It's just like seeing a newborn baby that's come into the world, doesn't know a thing, but knows how to drink, knows how to suckle. And that brings joy to the parents. But when you see a baby that either is unwilling or unable to drink milk, it is a sad occasion. So the same event uh, can be something that is either uh, joyful or sad. So on each of these safeguards, let's make sure we approach this joyfully. What we can do is say, thank you, Lord, for giving me these safeguards. Or if you've already fallen or slipped under the net, repent. Get back up and say, thank you for the safety net of your grace, of your forgiveness and get harnessed back in. But it should lead you to joy. So let me ask a few questions. Do you pay careful attention to the Word? Do you have daily private devotion times? Do you have daily family worship? A couple of weeks ago, uh, Mike uh, preached uh, an excellent sermon indicating that we need this safety harness. Our children need this safety harness in their lives. It needs to be a daily, regular thing. I'm not the primary person who's going to be feeding your family. Uh, you fathers are the primary uh, the feeders of your family, nurturing your children in the Word. Some more questions. When you have devotions, is it merely a ritual <clears throat> or is there a desire to really know what it is God wants you to do? Do you meditate on the Scripture? Do you take notes of what changes you need to be making when the Scripture, uh, the Spirit through the Scripture uh, brings things to your mind? Are you giving more earnest heed? We need to realize that the Scriptures are not just an option in the Christian life. Deuteronomy 32:46 says, "Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. It's your life. It's a valuable safety harness that will keep you from drifting." Okay, turn over to chapter 3, verse 12. The second safeguard that God puts in place is the need to beware of an evil heart of unbelief. Verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Uh, unbelief is a constant danger in a Christian's life. We might you know, think that that's not something that is there, but he warns us. It's, it's a constant danger. You've got to be on guard against it. Uh, and not think, well, it can't happen to me. When I was in seminary, I remember one time that uh, we were in a group discussing uh, the newspaper article, which we had just seen, where a prominent uh, evangelical pastor had been caught in a sexual scandal. And one of the guys said, oh, that would never happen to me. Uh, that's an area I'm really strong in. And I was thinking at the time, <laughs> take heed lest you fall, you know. 
that is not the attitude that we should uh, that we should have. Any one of us can be taken out by Satan when we are not on guard. In fact, there was a very uh, another prominent minister who had said exactly the same thing. I don't know what happened to this individual, but this minister said, this is an area I would never fall in. He told several of his friends that. That was the precise area that Satan took him down. Why? Because he was not on guard. He thought of himself as being uh, invincible. I know of another pastor who was caught stealing. It, it happened so subtly. He had never put up hedges. But the Scripture says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, this is really an easy safeguard to snap into place because all you have to do is remind yourself, my heart is susceptible to any sin. My heart is weak and I need to be putting precautions into place so that I don't fall into sin. That's all you need to do. Beware of what Hebrews 3 verse 13 calls the deceitfulness of sin. It's deceitful. It takes us in. It, it deceives us so easily. It fools us. It's just a gust of wind that suddenly comes along. We're up on the top of the bridge enjoying life and poof, off we go. Just uh, it, It's so deceptive. And so when we see another brother or sister falling into sin, don't be judgmental of that person. Just realize there, but for the grace of God, uh, I would go as well. Now, he says here, beware or guard. Let me give you some illustrations of how people have done that. David knew that his mouth was a motor mouth that could get him into trouble. So he prayed to the Lord, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. Psalm 141, verse 3. He realized he desperately needed the grace of God in this area of his life because he was weak. He was so prone to sinning with his mouth. That's bewaring. It's... it's uh, 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 taking great care. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, by swallowing evil words unsaid, no one has ever harmed his stomach. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. You know, you think, oh, it's just so hard to swallow those words. I've got to let them out. No, you're never going to hurt yourself, but you will hurt many people if you let those words out. That's one example. Job planned ahead of time to avoid evil by making a covenant with his eyes so that he would not look upon a maiden to lust after her. Job 31, verse 1. And so this safeguard is taking spiritual warfare seriously. It's taking the fact that there are 60 mile an hour winds uh, seriously. When I was in the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, uh, we were continually asking ourselves self-evaluation questions. We'd write down the specifics uh, on, a, on a piece of paper. Uh, for example, one of the questions we wrote down is, what are the weak areas of my life? Everybody has weak areas. Everybody. There isn't anybody doesn't have some weak areas in their lives. They need to be aware of what those weak areas are and begin to be taking actions to prevent them falling in those weak areas. Uh, otherwise, we're not be wearing. Another um, question are there any situations I find myself in where I fall into that sin more easily? Can I avoid those situations? What are the biblical solutions to overcoming those sins? Have I memorized enough ammunition from Scripture so that I can shoot at Satan at a moment's notice? See, this is what Jesus did. He had memorized so much of the Scripture that any time Satan tempted him to sin, he immediately said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. And he had a perfect Scripture to address that situation. We've got to be filling our minds uh, with the Scripture. And uh, there are a lot of other questions we could ask. Gary Duff put together a, 
a list of questions for New Year's. I, I think they're in your bulletins, and if you didn't get one, there's probably extras out there on the table. But pick one up, because we need to be just as systematic in guarding our souls as those workmen were systematic in making sure all of the safeguards were in place when they worked on the Golden Gate Bridge. The next last is in verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another, or as another translation says, encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So this is another means that God uses us uh, to keep on the straight and narrow. It's mutual encouragement. Uh, or, as some translate it, mutual exhortation. Uh, it's important for our well-being we minister to what, one another. Now, let's look at the danger first. The danger is lest any of you be hardened. And notice he says, any of you. On all of these things, any of us can fall into the danger. There are, really are not any exceptions. The deceitfulness of sin is so powerful that uh, it's very easy for us to rationalize sin as being okay. And once we've rationalized on one sin, our and we, we keep rationalizing, and the more we do that, the more hardened our conscience becomes. The solution, he says, exhort one another daily. And so it's talking about relationship. He's not just talking about coming to listen to a sermon once a week. Uh, daily, we need to be in each other's lives. He's talking about the members being involved in each other's lives. And so we need to share each other's joys and sorrows and uh, exhort one another, call one another up on the phone, know what's happening encouraging each other. The body functions best when there is a communication that is going through all of the synapses of our, uh, 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 of our you know, spiritual, as it were, um, nervous system, I guess is the, the word for it. Now, those of you who go camping, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you say that after the fires died down and there's a lot of coals there, if you pull a coal out by itself, it's going to become cold much more quickly than if the coals are clustering together. And that's exactly the way the Bible says it's true in, in terms of our body life. 1 Corinthians 12, read that sometime. His analogy of the body where the eye needs the hand and, and all of those things, he points out that we become very ineffective when we do not minister our gifts for one another. So be willing to be encouraged. Be willing to encourage others. Be willing to be exhorted. Be willing to exhort uh, one another. This is one of the safeguards that keeps us from slipping into insensitivity and hardness of heart. Now, if you've already been hardened and uh, you could care less about the fellowship of the saints, just repent and begin to do the, 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 you know, the first works. Uh, Revelation, he says, you've lost your first love. You've got to return to the first works. Well, uh, when we were first saved, you know exactly what God put in your heart. You desired to be around other believers. And he says, that's the way it should be throughout the rest of our lives. The next safeguard is fear, and you can find that in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. <clears throat> now, fear is not a very fashionable word nowadays. You hear people in churches talking about love a great deal, but you don't hear them preaching on fear. Uh, very much. And to me, that is ironic because one of the most frequent descriptions of a believer in the Bible is one who fears the Lord or some equivalent expression uh, to that. Listen to what Ecclesiastes uh, says about it. It puts uh, fear on a par with love. It says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
Ecclesiastes 12.13. Now, since the New Testament says love is the fulfilling of the commandments of God, in effect what he's saying is fear God and love God. This is the whole duty of man. So those two things, fear and love, covers everything. They are not opposites. They are not incompatible, as uh, many people try to point out. And one of the problems, I think, when people are processing through this is that they confuse fear with cowardice and, uh, you know, timidity. Uh, those, the Scripture says, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. But in the Greek, there's a totally different word uh, for fear that is used here. In fact, um, in uh, Revelation 21.8, it lists the cowardly as right at the top of the list of those who are going to be cast into hell. Okay, that kind of thing, we, do, we don't want to be cowards. We don't want to have the terror. Uh, terror of the Lord comes for those who are under judgment, but you can have the fear of the Lord without being under God's judgment at all. Uh, fear is that attitude of respect and awe that keeps one from making God angry. Now, let me illustrate. Imagine you're one of the construction workers that's uh, pictured in your outline there, and you're walking 740 feet uh, up there in the air. These guys had a view... Uh, of the beauty of the, the scenery and of the city and of the bridge, they had a view that made their work just seem incredible to them. It took their breath away when they were up there that high. It was sort of like the joy and the awe that you can experience when you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. You just gawk. You look there and say, this is incredible. I mean, your soul is so attracted to what it is that you are seeing. It was impossible for them to not appreciate the incredible privilege they had of being people who were able to be building that bridge. But they still had a fear, a healthy fear, of the heights. Now, they weren't terrified. No, these guys walked around quite comfortably up there. In fact, it's quite amazing if you look at how these guys could walk along these girders. Uh, they were quite comfortable, especially since they knew that there was a safety net down there to to catch them if they did fall. But their healthy respect for falling kept them from breaking the rules. They didn't fool around. Even a fall under the safety net hurt like crazy. <laughs> and um, it did have its own risks. But side by side with joy then was a healthy respect for the dangers that were involved. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well. The safety net of God's grace gives us boldness and confidence. We know we can't die. We know we have eternal life. Uh, we can't lose our salvation. But the knowledge of God's majesty, of His power, of His holiness, all of the other attributes takes our breath away, as it were. We don't trifle with Him. In fact, it is precisely standing in awe of His transcendence that attracts our hearts so much to Him. Just like you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You, 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 you're so attracted to what is there. And so we gaze and we gaze and we gaze at the beauty of the Lord. But we don't go take a flying leap off the end of the canyon either. Okay, That's the kind of balance that we're talking about here. We're attracted, but we do not mess around with God either. We have a healthy respect for who He is that makes us desire to harness up. Let me give you a couple scriptures. Proverbs 14 26 through 27 says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Isn't that an interesting combination of words? In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Why? What, what would be the reason? You'd think fear and confidence would be opposites. They're not. Well, the reason is 
The fear of the Lord is knowing the dangers that are out there makes us harness up and put on all of the safety equipment. But as soon as we have the safety equipment on, we can serve the Lord and do so without any sense of terror, right? Because we've got this confidence because the fear of the Lord has made us smart in the way in which we walk in life. The proverb goes on to say, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to avoid the snares of death. So it brings us strong confidence. It helps us to, uh, to avoid the snares of death. And so we, this is what Hebrews is getting at. We need to have that kind of a fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says. Uh, it helps us to walk smart. It helps us to avoid the wrath of hell and to avoid sin and to avoid anything else that he hates. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Now, this is true even for a Christian. Even though we are never going to have to face the terror of God as a judge again, we are in His family and we're going to be in His family forever, we can still face the anger of a father if we're deliberately uh, rebelling against Him. Uh, That's not been taken away. Hebrews 12, 28-29 words it this way, Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Just like a kid does not mess around with daddy, you know, by way of rebellion, uh, we don't mess with our loving Heavenly Father. And so we don't unhitch our proverbial safety harness. We don't take off the hard hats uh, by deliberately sinning. Even though there's no terror of God, we know the fall down to the safety net (laughs) can hurt sometimes. And uh, it can be a scary thing. And so we have a respect for the Lord. In fact, that's what gives us a good relationship with Him. Proverbs 28.14 says... Happy is the man who fears always. He's happy. Okay? So we've seen that the fear of the Lord is compatible with love, with confidence, with fullness of life, and with happiness. So the question is, do you have that respect of God's power that keeps you from sinning and disobeying His will? If not, examine yourself. Because Scripture says every believer uh, defines them as one who fears the Lord. So if you don't have the fear of the Lord, it may be that you're out- outwardly a-, a Christian, but God has never regenerated your heart. It's a good uh, thing to examine. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be con- confident. That's why He commands the fear of God. Now, the fifth safeguard is given in chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Now, he's just finished describing the rest that was in the Old Testament as being the land of Canaan. And they had to go into the land of Canaan. They had to engage in warfare in order to be able to inherit that land. And the first generation refused to do that, and they were, they were excluded uh, from the land. Now, in the New Testament, he's taking that as an image, and John Owen points out it's an image of the comprehensive gospel uh, it's the good news of salvation far as the curse is found. And I'm going to be likening it to the bridge. It includes heaven. It includes our individual salvation. It includes the fulfillment of every promise that the Old Testament was looking forward to, including the renewal of the new heavens and the new earth. It includes our own holiness. And um, this is the Canaan we're progressively entering. Now, the work to be done is... The, uh, the call for sanctification, the application of Scripture, 
The danger that he gives is lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. That first generation refused to go in and they were excluded from the land of Canaan. Now, some versions render this as the same example of unbelief. Others render it the same example of disobedience. Here's what one commentary says on this. The Greek is apatheos, which can be translated as either unbelief or disobedience. The church has separated faith and obedience, unbelief and disobedience, but their meaning in Scripture is the same. The separation of faith and obedience had deadly consequences for the church and had led to antinomianism and impotence. Now, it may seem strange that this writer says, you've got to labor hard to enter your rest. Isn't labor and rest an exact opposite? And especially if the rest is the gospel and the gospel is salvation by faith alone and the finished work of Christ and it's apart from our works, why would he say, and several commentators have talked about this, why would he say that we need to labor to enter that rest? Well, let me try to explain it uh, using the bridge illustration again. In your outline, the third picture down on the right is a picture of a man climbing one of the two main cables. And I want you to get that picture firmly in your mind. <clears throat> and if you've got any fear of heights, I think you're going to identify with this, picture, <laughs> this illustration very well. You're a new worker. You've been conscripted, and the boss has told you, I want you to climb up that cable, and I want you to start painting the top of that bridge. And uh, you start walking up that cable. You get 25 feet up, and you're sweating nails. You get 50 feet up, and you are holding on to the cable so hard that your muscles are aching. At 75 feet up, and you're freaking out. And... You just don't think you can do this any longer. You're only one-tenth of the way up that cable, okay? And so you turn around. You quit. You go down to the bottom, and the boss tells you, I want you to go back up there. You don't need to worry about anything. There's a safety net down there. You say, yeah, I don't even want to fall into the safety net, but all I can see is how far it is underneath that safety net, and you just feel terrible. I mean, your stomach is turning knots as you go up there. But what he tells you to do is, I want you to concentrate on the safety net. Don't be concentrating on how far distant it is underneath that safety net. So you, you go up again, and uh, you're just having a real hard time with this. It is a labor to enter into relaxation. It is a real struggle to, 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 to do this. But you get control of yourself, you focus on the safety net rather than focusing on the ground. Now, lo and behold, after a few days of doing this, you begin to become more and more comfortable. You look around you and there's other people out there that are a lot more relaxed than you are. They've been on the job for quite some time. In fact, they're so relaxed, you just absolutely marvel. They're totally relaxed. They're sitting on... You know, a, a girder hanging out over space, uh, eating lunch, you know, eating a sandwich don't seem to be troubled in the least. They're more mature than you are, but then you look at other people who have completely quit. They said, there is no way you're going to get me to go back up onto that bridge. And they abandon. That's what happened with the first generation of Israelites. They completely uh, 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 abandoned things. And that's the way it is with the gospel. We are saved by grace. We are equipped with spiritual harnesses and gloves and a hard hat. In fact, 
We're given wages we definitely do not deserve because those first few days that we're up there, we're hardly doing anything. We're hanging on more than we're working. And yet, God just freely gives all of those things uh, to us. Uh, fear torments us. We think, maybe I'm not saved. You know, why am I so afraid? Nobody else is afraid. And in response, you labor hard to not look at the ground. You fix your eyes on Jesus and uh, you look at the safety net. <clears throat> You're sorely tempted by your old sin. Sometimes you give in to your sins and you fall down into that net. And when you're down in that net, Satan tempts you to think, you know, it's not worth it, Phil. Don't even bother getting back up there again. There's no way you can do this kind of a job. Just stay on this net. Or better yet, get down on the ground, but don't get up in the air there. But you rebuke Satan firmly and you say, get behind me, Satan, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and I'm not going to get up. And as the gospel begins to be applied to everything that you are doing in life, you gradually find yourself beginning to have more confidence in His grace, more productive in His work. You find that just as unbelief and disobedience are connected in this verse, so faith and obedience are also connected. And so you, you begin to sing the, the song, Trust and Obey, with much more gusto and enthusiasm. You see, those who don't labor to enter the rest of belief in the gospel in every area of life, they never mature. They never understand the depth of the gospel. But those who labor to enter the rest, they find themselves entering into more and more joy and awe and wonder at all that God has provided for them. The sixth safeguard is over in chapter 12 and verse 3. Now, this one may seem like it's the same as the fifth one. It actually is quite different. The fifth one is applying the gospel to every area of life, whereas the sixth one is looking to Jesus as the source of our enabling, of our power. And you're looking to Jesus and seeing how He looked to the Father for the source of His power uh, through the Spirit uh, working that in Him. So chapter 12, verse 3. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. No, that's not the one. Oh yeah, verse 3. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The danger is obviously stated. We become weary and discouraged in our souls. Very easy for that to happen. When you're on top of the spiritual Golden Gate Bridge, your back can get sore. You can be tired. It seems like this job is never going to get done. You're going to be tempted to quit. Very easy for that to happen. The solution is to consider Jesus. And what this writer is saying is if you really consider everything that Jesus has done for you, it will encourage you to keep on keeping on when the going gets tough. Now, there's two essential sides to this considering of Jesus. The first is that we must consider the fact that Jesus endured everything so that we could have grace. Okay, He's not expecting us to endure alone. He's expecting us to appropriate the benefits that He's already purchased for us. In fact, He's up there hanging on to us when we're on the bridge. The second side is to consider, and considering Jesus, is that He's a model for us. Okay? Both are needed. If you have a model without the power, you're going to be very discouraged because you're going to, He's going to be so far above where you're at. But if you have grace, and yet you've never been shown the law, you've never been shown the, the model of where you need to be going, the blueprints, then you're not going to be enthusiastically following after Christ in the, the direction that He wants you to go. So both are... Uh, Important. I'm going to be especially emphasizing the second part. Now, let me use the analogy of the Golden Gate Bridge for both. 
on the one hand, it's important to realize that a safety net has already been strung for you by your forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He had to go through far more than you're ever going to have to go through in order to spread that net because there was no net for Him. He spread it without a net at great risk to Himself. In fact, He died in order to provide for you uh, His grace. And uh, even though it is possible for 60-mile-an-hour winds to sweep you off the bridge, you are totally confident in the safety net that your forerunner has uh, spread for you. Okay, so that's what we looked at in the previous point. But we can't stop there. If you lie on the net all day, and you do that day after day, you're not doing what the safety net was intended to make you do. You're not doing that. It is not security for the sake of security. And I think that's the biggest error that many grace uh, proponents talk about. And I'm a grace proponent, but uh, it's not security for the sake of security. It's security for the sake of holiness, for the sake of service for the Lord. And the second side of considering Jesus is that we are inspired by His example to do great things. We consider the blueprints that the master architect has written up and we say, that's beautiful. I want to be a part of that. And just by analogy, think of how you have been inspired by reading missionary biographies, or maybe you haven't been inspired because you've never read them, but you should. Uh, every time I read a book like Peace Child, it draws my heart out because here are men whose lives are counting for eternity. I want my life to count like that. And so I'm tremendously inspired by those stories. But how much more should that be the case when you're looking at Jesus? Because He was a modeled man and He intends for us to imitate and to be inspired by the things that He did. If we're persecuted, don't give up. Be encouraged by the way in which Jesus handled persecution and endured it on our behalf. Have we grown tired in our struggle against sin? Well, look to the pattern that Jesus set where uh, He struggled against sin even to the point of death. In fact, if you look at the next verse, it says, You have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. See, if Christ is our pattern, what we're going to say is, I hate sin so much, I'd rather die than to give in to that sin and displease my Savior. He's saying that's the kind of seriousness. <clears throat> He's saying, what kind of soldiers are you? You say you struggled against sin and yeah, you gave in again. Where's the wounds? I don't see any fight evidence in you. He's saying you've not yet resisted uh, to the shedding of blood. Uh, the long and the short of this safeguard is to meditate upon all that He has done for us. His life, His sufferings, His death, His resurrection power, His uh, the, the might of His kingly rule right now on your behalf. Never allow redemption that Christ has accomplished to become dull and just put it on the back burner. It's supposed to be a part of everything we do right now. Uh, and He didn't just do it as a model. He did it to empower. He, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end of everything that we do. He wept so that you could have joy. He suffered so that you could be comforted. He died so that we might live. He rules now so that we can overcome the tyranny and the dominion of sin and Satan. So consider Him. Look to Him. Don't look to your own solutions. The seventh safeguard that God has provided for His construction workers is listed, listed in chapter 12, verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Now, that's a quote from the Old Testament, and commentators point out that the admonition, make straight paths for your feet, is not so that you don't become lame. 
He's talking about you doing this so that others who are lame already don't get further lamed by dislocation. Uh, that's the context uh, from what they were, were quoting. And so another way of saying this is that our conduct should be so clear that we don't put stumbling blocks in the way of other people, but instead we're a good testimony that brings healing. So it really is a call to remember that our conduct does affect other people. And even though Satan may break through uh, some of the other armor that we have established, many times this is one that holds up. And it's not always for the, the, the best reasons, but you know, sometimes people don't follow through on their threat to get a divorce because they don't want the kids to be hurt. Or they stop doing a bad habit because they watch their kid doing the bad habit. And they don't want their kids following in their footsteps. And so that's the kind of the, uh, the idea uh, that's going on there. When we see something that would cause others to trip, remove it, make straight paths in our, our, our lives so that others will not be made lame. So it's another area of self-examination. Do we look out for the welfare of others? Uh, we could maybe care less of what, whether we're going to fall or not. We're suicidal. But we ought to at least have a care about what we're doing and its impact on others. Okay, the last safeguard that I want to look at is uh, similar in its outlook. It's chapter 12, verses 15 through 16. But let me read it uh, beginning from verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now the word lest occurs three times, and it highlights three dangers. First, in verses 14 through 15, we see that other people in the congregation, congregation can fall short of grace when they see us falling short of grace. Then in verse 15, secondly, people in the congregation can be troubled and defiled by your bitterness. And in third, in verses 16 through 17, we see that people in the congregation can fall into sin because of your sin. Now, let's just deal with the last danger first. Uh, the illustration that Hebrews uses is of the messed up family of Isaac. The deception, the favoritism, the manipulation that Rebecca showed in her family not only lost her the heart of her husband, her husband did not safely trust in her, and that probably grieved her, but it also lost her her son. She never saw Jacob again, and Esau hated her because of it, and it alienated son against son, but there was even more damage that was done. Uh, Jacob imitated his mom. His greed, deception, and manipulation pushed Esau to become more and more hardened. And so parents had an evil effect upon the children, and the children had an evil effect upon each other. That's the third danger. And the second danger is in verse 15. When we allow bitterness to grow in our hearts, it doesn't just poison us. We might think, I have a right to do this. It doesn't just poison you. It poisons everybody you come into contact with and that you speak with. It's amazing how bitterness can spread. It's just like a, it's just like a very, very dangerous uh, virus. People who felt just fine about an individual uh, 10 minutes ago 
suddenly find their hearts poisoned to them. Why? Because they have taken a grievance that is not theirs in a conversation. And now their minds are, are, are poisoned by this and they can't see straight. They can't see the good that they used to see in that individual. All they can see is the negative. Their judgment is clouded. The first danger is that we can encourage others to fall short of grace when we are continually falling short of grace ourselves. Falling short of grace means we talk about it, we aim at it, but we never live it. Okay? We talk about it, we aim at it, but we never live it. Our words in our life don't match. And there are many churches that talk, 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 talk about grace, but they don't live it. And the reason you can see that they don't live it is they're not becoming more holy. In fact, they're not concerned about holiness, which is an evidence, it's a proof positive. They don't have the grace. They've fallen short. And so this talk church produces talk Christianity. Okay? There's, there's, no, there's no appropriation of the power of God's grace within their lives falling short. Now, how do we avoid those three dangers? Verses 14 through 15 tell us, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully. In other words, we need to look carefully to the pursuit of peace and holiness if we are to avoid those dangers. And so when other people are trying to divide the, the body and bringing bitter things into the body, be a, a champion for peace. Uh, when they're speaking evil of, of one another. You need to be ambassador for peace. When your brother or your sister is persecuting you, you need to be a peacemaker. You need to be uh, one who is pursuing after peace. But pursue after holiness as well. Uh, just because other people think you can't do it, you can't achieve it, and don't even try because you're going to become just guilty, forget about it, don't let that stop you from trying. Uh, just because there is a movement out there in the church in, in grace that's a lawless grace, uh, don't let that make you lie down in the safety net all day and day after day and never get up there on the bridge to be building. Pursue holiness. Now, of course, all of this assumes our union with Christ, which was point number six that we've talked, that talked about. Without close fellowship with Christ as a person, not just as a doctrine, but as a person, developing intimacy, learning how to derive wisdom and strength on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, all our striving is going to be losing. We're not going to be able to achieve the things that we want to do. One of the reasons we have communion every week, well, main reason is because the Bible tells us to, but one of the reasons is because we realize we need communion with Christ on a continual basis as well. It's not one of those things where once a year, you know, you can get some help from the Lord. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Let's never trade the free grace of Christ for self-effort. That's sort of like trying to build the whole bridge by myself or trying to ride across the bridge without any gas in our gas tank. But let's at the same time remember that Christ's Free grace gives us tremendous freedom and power and joy in order to serve. He doesn't want us to stay in fear or in security, laziness. He came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the challenges in Hebrews and even where they smart, even where we recognize that we have fallen. I pray that we would not become discouraged. This is the favorite tool of Satan to make us to want to give up, but instead we would take courage and uh, rouse ourselves 
and apply the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and His forgiveness to ourselves and determine in this new year to be a holy people. Please, Lord, make us to be as holy as it is possible for a sinful people to become. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.